Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always broadcasting first on WPVMLP, Asheville 103.7, and streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville heard all over the world, and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com, if you're interested in any of Walter's music. Devine Dial, hats off to you for managing WPVMFM. Couldn't do this work without you. Thank you very much for all your attention to the details of the radio station. WPVMFM.org if you'd like to know more about community radio. If you'd like to reach out to me, jamesnave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. Would love to hear from you. You can email me through my website. Like I said, jamesnave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. And if you would like to join me and my creative collaborator, Allegra Houston, we do a Saturday morning writing workshop called the Imaginative Storm Writing Prompt of the Week. It lasts an hour, starts at 10 a.m. Mountain Time, noon Eastern Time, and we gather with a group of writers and we write, make things happen. And everybody gets to read and only takes an hour, and then we hang around afterwards for usually a fairly lively conversation. If you'd like to join us, you can find the Zoom link at imaginativestorm.com. That's imaginativestorm.com. We'd love to have you. The door's always open. Anybody can come. And you can also bring a friend as well if you like. So there you go, imaginativestorm.com. Today I'm airing a show I I recorded a couple of years ago with a poet, a writer, her name is Magdalene Smith. She's a Taos-based writer and travels all over the world, has great stories. She's a wonderful, thoughtful person. We sat at the gazebo at Maple Dodge Luhan House in Taos. It was warm, and I just loved this interview, and I thought, gosh, I'd like to re-air it for folks. So that's what I'm doing today. And I started out sitting there at the gazebo at Maple Dodge with a question about the blank page, something every writer has to think about. What's going to come first on the blank page? The blank page is a a kind of reckoning where you are summoning up your soul and your courage to break through all the yakety-yak that goes inside your head and trying to find the, the true voice out of for me at least, many voices inside my head, many characters, many memories, all sort of swirling around. So a blank page is obviously like a blank canvas. It's beckoning you to move out of this world into one that you are creating and have some control over. You are taking from your internal, mostly chaos, if you really think about what's simultaneously happening as you're in the act of writing, and finding this quiet place Maybe just a thread or, as Hemingway said, just one true sentence. It might come after a very long time that you recognize that sentence and you throw the rest out. You've got the nine-tenths of the iceberg. That is just a fact of writing. To get anywhere, you have to just shovel yourself down to a core. Whether it makes sense or not, you give into it and you just start writing and listening to something that is you and beyond you. 
Every time I do an interview, I always start with a blank page. I never know what I'm going to ask. Mm -hmm. And I look at the person like I looked at you, and that's what came, mm -hmm. the idea of the blank page. And another reason why I wanted to bring the blank page into the beginning of our conversation is because I have this association with you and you have an association with me that's quite writerly. Mm -hmm. We have connected because of Vermont College, the MFA program there. We both went through that and we both stayed on the page. Mm -hmm. Much of our adult life, or at least I have, and I suspect mm -hmm. you have too, so sometimes in these kind of conversations we have opportunities like this one mm -hmm. to share our experiences with people out in the Asheville audience and out beyond that on the global stream in case they're interested in writing too. So I'd, I'm not going to always talk about writing with you, but I just somehow thought it would start there. So as a person who engages your desire to communicate, what are some of the things you have done in your past that most inspired you, most impressed you, you loved? In terms of writing, well, I would say the privilege of being at Wurlitzer Foundation for a year and a half, where I was able to do nothing but write, and part of the creative contract you have there is that you can do anything you want. You don't have to come up with a finished project, but you cannot work outside. You cannot have a regular job. So for that time, I had dedicated writing and a safe space and also a wonderful artistic community of all types of artists, not just writers, but painters, you know, photographers, uh, many types of people, all together who were my neighbors. And we made lifelong friends. In fact, it was so odd, the world is so small. I, I used to live in Spain. My husband and I had had a bar in Spain, and we had paintings. It was like a living room kind of place. One of the paintings was by this young man, turned out to be my neighbor here in Taos. And I knew his painting before I knew him. I remembered his painting. <laughs> so it was a very magical time. So many people want to write, but to have that dedicated space, it somehow gives you uh, more freedom to say, yes, I can do this. And even if you have a bad day, so is everyone else around you. And I began to realize writing is simply an act you do every day. Or, you know, like Frank Waters or John Nichols, they write every day. You know, this is what they do. And even on Christmas, even on birthdays, it doesn't matter. That is how they have so many books finished, as opposed to many other people who have many ideas of books, but less done. So to create that habit, that expectation, I get up in the morning and I set aside this time. It's, you know, maybe eight to, to noon, four hours a day. Figure out what is your best time for your creative work. When are you freshest? And then go with that and then have the rest of the day to do whatever you want to do. That's important to have a life and also have the discipline to get something done where it finally begins to take a, a shape in your hands instead of just in your head. And you mentioned the Wurlitzer Foundation. Most people, when they hear Wurlitzer, think of the piano. Mm -hmm. What's this foundation all about? How did it come to be in Taos, and why is it here? Helene Wurlitzer was married into the Wurlitzer family, but she was 
of German descent and, and quite wealthy. And she ended up coming here during the time of Mabel Dodge. And in fact, from what I've heard, she and Mabel Dodge had a sort of who is the greatest grand dame of the town, who's doing the most for artists, et cetera, et cetera. And so, <laughs> so Helene was, and she was a patroness. She bought this 18 acres in the middle of town. It's, it, there are 10 houses, I believe, still. And then the main house that still has so much of her beautiful art that she gathered during that time from her artist friends. So the casitas are available for free rent and no utilities. You have to handle your own food. It's been there since the 19th. It's a, just a wonderful, wonderful opportunity. And I think as time goes on, there's these kinds of places are, are more and more rare, really need to be protected and honored. And I imagine there are people who have been in the world, at the World Arts Foundation who have mm-hmm. names folks might know. Right. Well, Cheryl Strayed was there, Robin Becker, and many, many more going all the way back into the 50s. So tremendous roster of very talented people. And some friends of mine, uh, Deborah Gordney, who went on to, to be a finalist in the National Book Critics Circle and ended up marrying Barry Lopez. So through the foundation, I then became friends with Barry Lopez and went to their wedding uh, with Deborah and Barry and met other friends. And it just has been this wonderful connection of artists that just continue to grow and nurture each other. It changed my life. And and that's one reason I'm still here in Taos. I came here to do that and then just (laughs) couldn't quite shake it. You mentioned you had a bar at one time, and then you told your story of coming here to the World Arts Foundation and being with all these folks and connecting and connecting, and it keeps rippling out and rippling out today, tomorrow, and the next day. What was the bar like? It seems like there's some similarities to the World Arts Foundation and the scene at the bar. Give me some atmosphere. Bar owner, you were a writer then as well? Were you doing the literary thing while you were serving the beer to the Spanish bohemians? Oh, no. Well, I had a very odd life in Europe. I lived in Europe 15 years, so I actually went there as a pregnant young woman. I left the States. I was four months pregnant (laughs) with no money, just the tickets in our uh, pockets, my husband and I, and we ended up going to Italy. A duke befriended us. I started working for him, and from there we went to Paris and became performers on stage. And we had hit records over there and uh, performed at the Cannes Film Festival, sang at the Olympia. We did all these strange things, but we got to Paris. We actually were begging on the streets. We didn't have money, and I had a three-week-old baby. By the time we got down to southern Spain, we were again in this situation of we were illegal immigrants. What are we going to (laughs) do? And I was again pregnant with my third child then. Anyway, once we got to southern Spain, a place called Marbella, my husband was looking for work. I was just sitting around with the kids. One of the first jobs he got there was James Hunt, the race car driver. Well, he was opening a club there on the Costa del Sol called Oscars, and he offered the job of PR to my husband. And through that, we met all these friends of James Hunt's. And James Hunt loved our family so much, he gave us one of his Grand Prix trophies, <laughs> one from Brazil. <laughs> we had our little apartment. Anyway, so then my husband got to be known, and at that point, uh, he was excellent at uh, PR. Someone called him a walking bottle of champagne, and that was true. He was so much fun. We stayed married for 20 years, even though he was gay. He was better than, than anything. He was a great father, and we loved each other. And uh, So anyway, someone offered 
uh, Saron Bar. They set up the funding and everything, these Spanish business people, and we started Joe's Bar, and it became one of the most popular uh, bars on the Costa del Sol. It was set up like a, a living room. It was very intimate with excellent music, small. As it turned out, like Rod Stewart would come in early at 11 and at night, he would be basically our first customer because in Spain, dinner happens at midnight. So that was a pre-dinner and he knew no one would be in there. And of course, he could be free to just enjoy the music and just be treated like a normal person. And then by one o'clock, it was packed. There were lines of people trying to get in. And so we had all these amazing friendships that came out of that. I mean, not just only famous people, but also regular people. That's what was so beautiful. There was rich, poor artists, beggars. And, you know, it was just the kinship, the humanity, and the great music, and the welcoming atmosphere. So it was like the camaraderie of the Wurlitzer, or any group of kindred souls who just want to enjoy each other's company, you know, and talk about true things, be themselves, be accepted for who they are. So you have Rod Stewart coming in at 11 o'clock to listen to this great music. Yes. Well, obviously, he's a great musician. Yes, he is. Who was playing? It, it was a disco bar, so it was music. We got our music all from London, and it was my husband who was the DJ. He was a great dancer, singer. He was a great performer in every way, but he had a natural love for people and this beautiful mix of music. It could be Frank Sinatra or it could be like Prince or anything in between, but the flow was always almost controlling the mood. You know, you'd bring it up and then down, and he was a maestro at that. And so when your husband was on stage playing this music mm -hmm. at 11 o'clock at night, he would start out at 11 o'clock at night with a certain vibe, and then he would move mm -hmm. forward into the deep night with a different kind of vibe. Mm -hmm. Did he change that vibe every night? Yes, yes, and, and really depended who was in the bar, because some nights you have like a rowdy crowd, and, and other nights you have more mellow people, and it was different every night, which is why... People came night after night, and people met and got married there. I mean, it just became this hub of beauty because it was a safe space. There's so few places that say, come and be yourself. Anything goes within reason, but this is a place of freedom and free speech and the beauty between us. So you said you had local people coming as well yes. as luminaries. Yes. Do you have a story of a local person who came in you remember fondly? Oh, my goodness. Well, yes, so many. We made friends there. Again, friends for life. Two of our dearest friends, Nikki and Vicky, were these, at that time, college girls, one from Cambridge and one from Oxford, and they were visiting the Costa del Sol. And it was love at first sight. You can recognize another person when you don't have to kind of push through anything. It's just click there. Yes, they were in college at that time, and uh, we have remained friends through the years now. They are married with grown-up children, and we still have this beautiful, beautiful vibe between us. Uh, Vicky now lives in Canada, in British Columbia, and Nikki is a very well-known therapist in England. And so how long did you run this bar before you moved on to something else? Well, we had it 10 years. We also, at that time, opened a second business that was a cafe theater where we did live performances and had bands and comedy acts and such from Germany and different places. And it was also a French restaurant, so that was a larger one. We had that only about two years because it was just too much work. Then my mother came down with Alzheimer's, and my brother was here in the States taking care of her. And I started thinking, uh, by that time, my oldest daughter was 13. I thought, 
if there was ever a time to come over here and, and get to know the American side of the family and help my brother, it would have been then. And so put the bar up for sale, moved over for that reason. And I've always missed it, but on the other hand, for our family, it was the right thing to do. So Joe's Bar, did it remind anybody of the fictitious Rick's Bar in Casablanca? I think that might have been a little bit of the, uh, because he's an American in a foreign country, and uh, yeah, people responded very much to that. And it was easy to remember. It was on a back street. Nobody, you had to find it. It wasn't just out there, and people like that, too, that you had to know about it to get there. And you mentioned when you first came to Paris, you were an illegal immigrant. A lot of people do that. A lot of people go to another country, especially artists, and they'll do a workshop or they'll do performances, get paid under the table, and they'll maybe do it for a whole year and Mm -hmm. tuck away some euros or pesos or whatever they tuck away and then come back and... Mm -hmm. Not an un, not an uncommon thing, and I imagine there are a lot of people that are doing that right now all over the world, using their creativity to make their way as 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 immigrants, as mm-hmm. as migratory people who move from one place to another. You identify yourself now as a writer. Mm-hmm. You showed up at the World Wordster Foundation as a writer. You say you write four hours a day, and yet you tell us you were a performer. Mm-hmm. How did you move into performing, and what kind of performance did you do? Well, the performing was simply, and I, initially, I'm very shy, but it was a matter of survival. Uh, initially, my husband got the job with this already established performance group, and I was working as a secretary under people I didn't like. So it turned out that in this performance group, one of the women had to leave the group and they needed another dancer. And so I just auditioned <laughs> in sheer terror. <laughs> the, the producer had happened to see me and said, why don't you audition? So I said, okay. And then my husband, Joe, worked with me on this moves and stuff. So I didn't look like a complete, you know, ostrich on stage among all the swans. And I got in. <laughs> It wasn't that I wanted to do it, but it did seem like a better choice than being a secretary. So then we started traveling. We we, uh, performed at the Grand Casino and the Cannes Film Festival, did TV, radio uh, shows all over Europe. And it was a great experience. And certainly I learned to face my fears through that. My first show was just hideous. I, I was so glad it was a live show with no cameras because I think I might have done it completely backward on the stage. I don't know. But, and, and people loved you anyway, right? Well, it, thankfully, there were a lot of other people on the stage. <laughs> so I just was highly embarrassed, but then I knew I had to work harder. I just had to work harder. I couldn't. It was too embarrassing to be up there and look so foolish as I know I did. So I worked really hard. And then I finally started to get it. Then I did all right. And then uh, things started going smoothly. But almost never does a new venture that you've never tried before go easily. I can attest to that. But if you stick to it and through it, you can make it good. Another thing I find interesting, you are telling us these stories of great adventure. I know you weave your memories and your experiences into the work you do today. I suspect you do. Mm -hmm. Who doesn't when you write? You were doing this with three children. You were doing this with no money. Mm -hmm. You were doing this with a husband who loved you. So you had a companion that could Mm -hmm. watch your back. And yet, three children, no money, on the streets in Paris? That spells obstacle. 
and yet you managed to go forward with that. So for people out there listening and they're hearing your, your story, they think, well, well, that's all fine for her. She must have had something very special that was allowed her to go out and do those things that her intuition told her to do. What kind of thoughts would you have for somebody listening to this show thinking, gosh, I would like to scratch that itch myself. How, how could I go about that? Well, I think that so often we want to have something really sure to jump into, and that rarely comes. And even if it does, it's not necessarily very often not what you thought it was going to be as it unfolds. And so... I, I am Irish. I do have a sense of a wild hair up my behind, as they say. Nonetheless, I found that facing my fears opened up a depth in me and a courage in me that I couldn't have gotten otherwise if I hadn't actually taken the risk. So I, I'm not encouraging everyone to go out and just go crazy in risk-taking, but I think if something keeps nudging you and tapping you on the shoulder, something you truly desire that is something that you you want to find out, can I do it or not? I'd say take the first steps toward that and don't give up too easily because every writer, every artist, everyone who challenges the status quo always faces uncertainty. It's in not giving up. And even if it's just, okay, I can't write four hours a day, I'll write one hour a day. It's not like everyone has to be the same if we're all writers or artists. We don't have to take the same route. But what every artist has to do is answer to the call in themselves of what is it I'm trying to create? What was I born to create? What is part of me that no one else can do on this earth? What is this that moves me? What are my passions? What can I hold on to here? And even if I fail, I'll learn from that failure. And then very often you'll surprise yourself at the way your life moves in a different direction that you never even dreamed. Who could have ever planned out the crazy life I have? It was just kind of being there and saying, okay, I'll, I'll try. I'll give it a go. It's better than being a secretary. I'll stand up in front of 10,000 people and look like a fool and see how that goes. <laughs> when I was growing up, I was a very young lad and I was going to enter the first grade at Venable Elementary School. And the reason I'm asking this, or the reason I'm bringing this up, is because I want to tie back into when you were younger. I was going, I was going into the first grade at, at, at Venable Elementary School, which is now gone. Venable Elementary School, for those of you in Asheville, was on Brevard Road, exactly where the Super Ingalls is, just across from the Biltmore Square Mall. So those days have long since passed. But when I went to Venable... And I was, couldn't have been more than five years old or six. It was just before I entered the first grade in elementary school. We didn't have kindergarten back then. I remember looking at the desk and seeing the desk with the little pencil holder at the top of the desk. It was a little groove, and it would hold the pencil. And I remember panicking, thinking that when I got to school the next year, they would have taken that pencil holder away, and my pencil would roll off the desk. And as I'm talking to you, and as I'm listening to your story about the bar and all of those people, I suddenly remembered that desk, and I think that was the first time I had some inkling of where I might be going in my life. Mm. How about you? You were a little girl. You grew up somewhere. Mm -hmm. You. Ohio. What about it? When did you first think, hmm, that's interesting, that might take me somewhere? Well, I had always wanted to be a writer. 
but I was reading books like, oh, Treasure Island, and I was fascinated by Swamp Fox. And I just started reading these books and thinking, how could I ever be a writer? And I'm about six and just learning to read and write. And I'm thinking, how could I be a writer? Because I don't have these kinds of adventures. I'm not going to go off on a boat and do all these swashbuckling things. I don't even have a life yet. But still, every summer, from the time I could learn to read, my dad had an old uh, Corona typewriter, I would sit down in the summers and try to write my life story. It was so boring. I would say, my name is blah, blah. I live at blah, blah. I am in this grade. My teacher is this. It was just all these kind of just dull facts about my life. And again, I would get so discouraged. I think, who would ever want to read this? I better go out and have a life so I'll have something to write about. And that was one of my earliest memories were these attempts at writing, these failed attempts at writing. And also I did plays. I did. I had a neighborhood newspaper at 10 called The Fad. We distributed it through all the neighbors. Uh, so I was always writing, but never considered myself a writer until I got older and realized it's more about your permission to, to honor yourself and pay attention to what your real self is doing while you're over on the other side worrying what you're good at. So only as an adult, when I finally got into the MFA program, I was so stunned. I couldn't believe it. No, I just didn't have any faith in my ability to write. Once I learned that it is an act, it's a habit, it's an attitude, it's an engagement with life and always self-correcting too. You're going someplace, you don't know where you're going, but you do get there if you continue. And very often what I write to myself can be helpful to others as well. I've been involved in writing a memoir about my time in Europe, my marriage to the gay husband, who was also actually a gay in denial faith healer. He actually had healing gifts too. So it's a very strange story. And it's taken me about 20 years now working on it. Almost got sold in London and then it didn't. I am continuing now, especially at this time in the world. I have a new perspective on, on some of it. So I'm doing final edits. So here are my thoughts on the dangers of writing a memoir. My emotions are all tangled up with the story, the details of memory, the lies and the truths and the half-truths, and the deception, delusion. All of it swirls like a huge hypnotic eye, like the dolly eye in vertigo, the swirl of it, an eye in the middle like a starfish, arms and legs spread helplessly in a swirling black and white spiral, sucking me down, down into underland, where the real tooth is told in metaphor and subconscious vagaries and horrible interpretations so unlike the love I pretended to have. I have given myself up to the story of my life, and part of that story is how you have to stop living to write of the past. You have to go there again and relive it, jump in and out of it, drown in it, wade in it, leave it all together and float up to the cloud stratosphere where creation sings and no matter what you think you are writing about, it is here, just this element of energy that transforms all thought into creative action and thus into its true form the explicits of which are unknown to the author until they reveal themselves. This is the sweet spot we all dream of, and most more often than not, it is a dream, a few seconds of splendor that lifts us into other realms, where at best we have a better view from which to tell our story. If only the memory wouldn't stop receding into that other territory, the now of the soul, where no matter what I do or what I'm working on, I'm working on this, learning how to live, 
how to self-direct my dreams, place myself in a truer perspective that reflects my own soul, my true needs, which are most often buried under grandiose ambition or scathing self-deprecation. I am learning to reach for what is closer, doable, the smaller steps to glory, the doing of the work moment by moment, no one blinding flash of light, no brilliant blindness or dark grave waiting for resurrection. The percolating has begun. Every day I percolate with newness of life and perspective. I operate according to my own instructions of which my soul knoweth right well, and we are one. I hear her and she hears me. Those slow steps you are taking now yes. sounds like wisdom. Did it take you a while to acquire this wisdom? Well, I'd say, yes, 20 years of working on the same book. For the writing of the book is a book in itself. But that story just gains more relevance with time, and that's what makes me know this is not an exercise in ambition. It's something that I, I have to do. All kinds of other things can go crazy in my life, but that is something I take very seriously. There are so many reasons for this story to be told and out there. And plus, it's a great, funny, weird story. I have a lot of humor, too. If we can keep on laughing, that is a very important point. Never stop trying to find the humor. Uh, and I'm Irish, so I have a black humor, but I do still have the humor. <laughs> a lot of people who live in Asheville come to Asheville in their late 40s, their 50s, their 60s, 70s, uh -huh. even in their 80s. Uh -huh. A lot of people have been coming to Asheville for years, like the people who come here to Taos for years. And a lot of people retire. And when I use the word retire, I don't mean one arrives at 65, takes the pension and goes off and sits under the tree. Mm -hmm. People come to Asheville retiring from one thing, moving, moving to another. Mm -hmm. So as I've known you over the years, you always present yourself as a woman who is exploring, inventing, digging, looking, taking this angle, that angle. Maybe it's the Irish in you. All the Irish are always looking and telling all these tales. Maybe you're just looking for that leprechaun or the gold <laughs> at the end of the rainbow. Who, know, who knows what it is? How does this time in your life inform your enthusiasm? And do you feel like you have more wind in your sails now than ever? Or have the sails always been blowing? Well, I think the sails have always been blowing, but finally, I am learning how to control the effects and the circumstances of my life and how to get go more directly instead of getting blown off course so easily, how to shore up my life so that I can actually do the things I'm attempting to do. Because on top of the memoir, I'm also writing a novel, a mystery novel based on a true experience I had here in Taos, and also a book of short stories on the mystical aspects of being in Taos. So I am constantly kind of on a broad way working on multiple projects, and that just seems to be the way I work. But in the past, it has been very difficult to try to complete anything with so so many irons in the fire. And so now I'm going to be 65 next month, and I feel for the first time, really, that I have the wisdom and perspective to actually know what I'm saying and where I'm heading, not to get overly elaborate on the plans, but to actually work with myself to make those winds, instead of blowing me backward, you know, push me forward. So what is your relationship to continuing education in your life? How do you keep up with all of this? I am always open to learning. 
there are wonderful and amazing things to learn. I have a pretty open life, so I have many new connections with people always kind of startling, and if anything takes my interest, I'm willing to move toward that. For right now, I'm learning a lot about, oh, justice and our nation and what is the artist's role and what is the citizen's role in a time of crisis that we're in now. I'm also teaching myself always how to write. I'm currently reading um, Tony Doerr's wonderful book, All the Light We Cannot See. I just love the crisp, clear way he writes. You know, I can always learn how to do better. If I come to an obstacle in my book, say, for instance, there's a lot of sex in my memoir. The sex of the 70s, of the Paris disco days, of voulez-vous coucher avec moi ce soir, is very different now than the, the Me Too and all the things coming together. So I take time to inform myself of the morals of Anais Nin and the way it was in Europe, but then also who am I as a woman today? Some of the things I wrote 10 years ago about my younger self's you know, sexual experience is having a gay husband and, and basically an open marriage because we lived together knowing he was gay. After the first few years, I said, you're gay. And he says, no, I'm bisexual. I said, no, you're gay. We weren't going to break our family up over that. So he had his boyfriend. I had mine. We lived an unusual life. I guess I never thought I had to live a life like everybody else. You no, know, we loved our family. We wanted to raise our family together. I didn't want to raise a family in Europe by myself, and neither did he. So we stayed married 20 years because in Spain there wasn't divorce. Anyway, we couldn't even get divorced. So we stayed married 20 years, and on our 20th anniversary, we had a divorce party. <laughs> Life is what you make it. Really, it should be according to what you want. It's not really what people expect of you. I'd like for you to talk more on your thinking around the citizen and the artist and justice and what one can do now. It seems difficult to me when I think about it. I would like to make a big contribution, and yet every contribution I make seems rather small. Well, I think it's true that considering the big blathering uh, lies that have a lot of uh, play on the air these days, it is difficult. And I think that the more effective work is telling the truth. Say, for instance, I've just started this recently, and it's maybe not as big as I would like to make it, but say when I read a Washington Post article, and I'll go on the comments, and I will write a comment, quite a fierce comment, and I would find that I would get a lot of response from other people reading the Washington Post, and there would be a conversation that would ensue with people I didn't even know that actually was very helpful because we all were helping each other work through this very thorny time. And I think shows such as yours, that, that it's all the more crucial to honor a truth wherever you are and to speak up, and not just stand by in silence. There's a lot of grassroots stuff going on. There's a lot of unimaginable things every day in the news that are actually positive, as if the whole illusion's kind of breaking apart. And we're standing in a rubble, maybe quite a bit like the end of World War II or, you know, after these, these devastating times. And then you do have to find innovative ways. You have to find new ways forward. You don't go back to these ways that have already proven they're not working. I'm trying to call upon in myself more innovative ideas and more large structure ideas that are not about keeping the old stuff going. Because clearly what's breaking apart is breaking apart and it's leaving room for new and younger people coming into government. I think all of that is so 
positive and truth actually being told, real conversations now being had about what was always there but was hidden. It's a weird time. It feels like devastation, but there's also a lot of tremendous inspiration coming forth from everyone, and I think everyone really needs to participate in this any way you can, whether it's in your community or among your social media or whatever it is, or just finding a beautiful poem and sharing it. I mean, people are so thirsty for any kind of truth now, and that is a great and beautiful thing that's happening. Touching back for just a brief second on the bar you created all those years ago, and then keeping that in mind, moving forward to 2018, you are turning 65. You have lots of projects going on in in your life. Another thing I know about you, because of all our conversations, you're a writer, you're a creative, you're also an entrepreneur. You do a lot of entrepreneurial effort to keep the boat afloat. So could you reflect a bit on your role as an entrepreneur in 2018? How do you make all this happen for yourself? And I know that you are somewhat active on social media, so you are aware of all of the nuances of the modern as well as the retro. I'd say that in 2018, so close to the elections, I'm sort of at the ready if I would decide to jump in on something that was crucial. I look longingly at all the protests going on in Washington right now because they're very necessary, the the public force. But in the reality of what I'm doing here in Taos and uh, the things that come into my life, I always trust things coming into my life to take a second look at and see, is this going to be right for me? And, And most recently, the Frank Waters Foundation and the property 15 acres up in Arroyo Seco, which is outside of Taos, the great writer Frank Waters and his wife Barbara Waters. Barbara was a good friend of mine. Anyway, they left this land and his royalties, everything for a nonprofit to take over and continue to let that 15 acres be a creative artist retreat, very similar in concept to the Wurlitzer Foundation, but it's much smaller, it's more rural. The land has acequias on it, it's very uh, near El Salto Mountain, it's beautiful and it borders Native American land. And it was the land where Frank wrote his books, he built part of the house with the main character in The Man Who Killed the Deer. It's a historical site, it's a cultural site, but more importantly, in the early 1990s, he said this is going to be for artists. This land will never be sold. It will always be here to develop the creative spirit because the creative spirit and the nurturing of the land and the spirit of place is so important. I wrote here and I was inspired here. I want to leave this for others to be inspired too. And so it's a beautiful thing they did. They were the first donors to Taos Land Trust. So part of that land, eight acres of the 15, are protected by Taos Land Trust to never be developed. So they were visionaries, and that was a gift to the community. But now I hear that because of the nonprofit that is holding on to it right now, doesn't know how to raise funds, that they're saying, oh, let's just sell the land. Let's just turn our backs on what Frank and Barbara said and sell the land. Because Barbara was a close friend of mine, and I just can't let that go by. So I am pushing back to make sure they don't sell the land. Right now, I'm considering doing something very innovative and different so the old can be bridged into the now, but that that land would definitely be dedicated land for artists and creative pursuits. And how would you go about doing that? Well, it's in the beginning stages. Right now, I'm in contact with the family offering solutions, and I'm considering maybe an an artist council where it could be, uh, rather than 
uh, one small nonprofit where all the burden is on this nonprofit clearly does not have enough understanding of fundraising. Another part of me that you may not know is when I lived in San Diego, when I first came over from the States, I worked in grants administration for the city of San Diego. And so I coordinated grants among like 30 nonprofits. I wrote the grants. We got the biggest grant in San Diego history at that time, $15 million. And I coordinated all the contracts, the administration, the writing of it. So I have a background in that. And I'm thinking more of a coalition. And especially because the land was dedicated not just to writers, but to any kind of artist. And I include in that land rights, water rights, the ecology of our planet, all of that. I think if Frank were alive today, he would definitely feel that way. This land has a beautiful aseki. It has such good energy. All I can think is there has to be a way to make it work. It's my jumping in ahead and saying, do I know what I'm doing? Not yet. I, I will find out. And if there's any way to bring that into more the vision they had and why they left it for this community, and not just this community, but artists from everywhere. Why can't that happen? Why should that just be gone because somebody can't think of a solution? Maybe they can't, but maybe I can, and others like-minded can join in. So, I would think now more than ever you could succeed at that because of all of the networks exactly. we have out there. There's a lot of complaining about people looking at their phones, walking into the telephone pole. The yes. kids are all looking at the screen and so there's a lot of complaints about that. I take a different point of view. I say these networks are all broadcast systems and we can broadcast our stories, whatever we choose to broadcast, over those systems. And as you pointed out, you make these comments mm -hmm. in your Washington Post article, people respond back so we can get these things going. So if you did it in 2018, 19, 20, 21, however further down the line you want to carry it, how much would you use those networks, and do you feel fluent in that? Well, I don't feel fluent in that, in that simply because I don't have time to become fluent, and I know it's an art, but my younger daughter is a social media expert. I think there would be a social media aspect. There would be a film aspect, for, and also a blessing that is maybe it seems to be taking place is I've been working with a director on transforming Frank's novel, The Man Who Killed the Deer, which is a novel based on Taos Pueblo, that that seems to be going forward and will be made into a movie. And also for some of these plans I'm talking about, uh, I've made some very good friends at the Taos Pueblo who have offered to give me their help on this as well, because... I don't know if you know about The Man Who Killed the Deer, but that novel, Frank wrote it in 1940s, and at the end, it has uh, the Blue Lake, their sacred Blue Lake, which was actually stolen from them and made into uh, forestry land, and they were always fighting to get it back because Blue Lake is their religion. It's where they do all their worship and all their ceremonies. They were blocked from going there, and in Frank's novel written in 1940s, they got Blue Lake back from the American government. Well, that actually happened in 1970s. And so Frank had this weird visionary aspect to his writing. And the Taos Pueblo people in petitioning in the 1970s for Blue Lake to be returned to them actually gave copies of the man who killed the deer to Congress so that the white Congress could understand what the land means to the Pueblo. And because of that, the, the Taos Pueblo are fond of Frank for that very reason, because he was a bridge to, in translation almost, that book. And now it looks like that actually is going to come to the screen, too. So, 
So this piece of property you will be working with, you have the Pueblo friends supporting it. You yes. have people outside of Taos supporting it. Yes. You have folks maybe all around the world who would be interested yes. in coming. And everybody hopefully is connected in one way or another on more than one level. Yes. I suspect not everybody is totally connected, but most people in the world have at least an internet cafe they can go to a mile down the road, mm -hmm. I'd like to think, and connect with some of this. So this, this is all about connection, mm -hmm. all about getting the story told, mm -hmm. all about being present, mm -hmm. staying magical yes. as we move into the years of our lives. Yes, yes, absolutely. And one other thing, when Barbara Waters was dying and I was staying at the house, the oddest thing happened. It was one of her great dreams for this man who killed the deer to be made into a movie. And she had Parkinson's. She had needed 24-7 care. She'd just gotten out of the living center and was in hospice. And we were sitting at her kitchen table saying, oh my God, how are we gonna pay all these bills? And the phone rings. Well, it's this guy who says, hi, I'm a director from Hollywood and I was just thinking about optioning the man who killed the deer. It was so odd because it was Barbara's dream, and Barbara, of course, was in bed. And everybody at the table said, oh, it's got to be a scam. Somebody must have heard she's dying. It's, that can't be right. How crazy is that? And so I said, how did you get this phone number? And he said, well, Frank Waters is in the phone book. <laughs> so here in Taos, Frank died in 1995, but 2015, he was still in the phone book. And this guy, it turns out he was for real. Everybody said, I'm not going to call him back. No, no, he's, it's a scam. Just ignore it. I said, somebody needs to call him back. I'll call him back. I'll make sure he's who he is or not. And so it turned out he was a director, and he did end up optioning the movie. He came out and met Barbara, and we took him to the dances here. He wanted to find out more about it. He'd heard about the book from his meditation teacher in L.A. who said, if you want to do a movie of something pertinent now, read this book. So it was such an odd thing, but it was one of her greatest dreams. And he came out and met her. She was not in a coma yet, but she was very close to death. And she died the following week. But that dream, <laughs> <laughs> damn it, that dream happened. <laughs> she, she was so relieved she just died. She said, okay, my work here is done. <laughs> So this was in 2015, so now this thing is moving forward. This director is legit and putting some yeah, energy in it, and you're helping to I, make this happen. Yeah, helping him with the cultural understanding, reading the script. Even in, in talking to him before he was deciding if he was going to buy it or not, we had to spend hours on the phone. He didn't know anything. He's a Chicago guy. He lives in L.A. now. He knew nothing about the Pueblo people, but he loved the story, the magnitude of it, the depth of it. And someone listening today may be thinking, gosh, I'd like to read that. How do you get it? Just go to Amazon and order yes, it? Yes, it's on Amazon. Yes. It's called The Man Who Killed the Deer. It's actually being taught in schools in California. Even though Frank wrote it, it gives a close depiction of Pueblo life here. And then, of course, their deep integrity, the power of their spirits. It's an honorable book. Barbara and Frank always had some juju there. <laughs> And as we close this show, I would like to note, for those of you listening in Asheville, 
Magdalene and I are sitting at Mabel Dodge Lujan House, and Mabel Dodge Lujan House was given to Mabel Dodge by Tony Lujan, who was an honored member of the Taos Pueblo. And the land we're on now is right next to the Taos Pueblo land. There's a fence right behind the Mabel Dodge House. I'm looking over the rooftop and I can see the cottonwood trees and the clouds in the background and beyond that, the blue sky. And there's an acequia. An acequia is an irrigation ditch. No water in it right now. It's running right underneath our little gazebo where we've been talking for the last hour. And that acequia comes straight out of the Taos Pueblo. So this little section of land here was Taos Pueblo. Tony Lujan gave it to Mabel. And here we sit right on the land where the man who killed the deer also lived. Mm, that's beautiful. The circular nature of life. Magdalene Smith, thank you so much for taking the time out of your afternoon to sit here with us and tell us your story. I love Spain. I love all of your <laughs> stories. And it's a real pleasure to have you in my life. And I'm glad to introduce you to the Asheville audience as well. Thank you. It has been such a pleasure. And hey, hey, Asheville, you got a good man from your hometown. I just so appreciate it. I feel the same way about you, Nave. Many years fighting the good fight together. Well, let's keep it up. Yeah. All right. And there you go, my friends. My conversation with Magdalene Smith, like I said earlier. Magdalene and I met at the Mabel Dodge Lujan house a few summers ago. And I just loved her story about Spain and all, all the stuff that she was doing and how she took her life experiences and, and turned them into all kinds of writing projects and writing artifacts and things you can read. So it was a real pleasure to, to hang out with Magdalene. And it's been, been a number of years now since we've seen each other. Of course, COVID-19 fell upon all of us and that's prevented a lot of movement so I'm hoping that as the future emerges and we emerge with it Magdalene and I will be able to get together maybe I'll, I'll do another interview with her catch up see what's going on now after the time has passed in fact you might be interested to know that I just paused this recording which I'm doing now to email Magdalene and ask her what she's up to I haven't seen her, like I said, since before COVID-19 came. So I, I wonder, I'm not even sure if she's still in Taos, but I know she's active and I know she's somewhere in the world and I think maybe it's time to interview her again. So you may be hearing more from Magdalene in the very near future, or at least I hope so. We'll see, you never know. One of the things I've always loved about doing these shows and I've been doing these shows now for the last five years and airing them on WPVM-FM and KCEI Cultural Energy Radio out of Taos, New Mexico. What I love about the interviews, of course, getting to know the people, finding things out about people I've known for years, finding things out I didn't know, and then for the brand new people, finding things out that I'm happy to know and I'm learning those things along with you. So it's really a wonderful thing to be able to connect with these interviews. A great number of the people I've spoken with have been poets and writers. Of course, I have other people on the show as well. 
I'm drawn to the poets and the writers and the singer-songwriters because I, I like language and I like the way we take things in. And you may have experienced taking things in that you remember forever. And even after you've heard them or take, read them, you, you still remember all the imagery. Which brings me around to something that I took in a long time ago and I often like to drop into this show when I can. Some songs by my good friend Big John Sharer. When I first heard Big John Sharer sing, I took it in and I remembered it because his voice is so wonderful. So when I have a little extra time like I do today, I like to play some of the songs Big John Sharer sings. So today he's going to cover a song that you may know titled Nature Boy. He's retitled it. It's Nature Boy, Nature Girl. Here's Big John Sharer. very special kind of boy. He wandered very far, very far, over land and sea. He was a little shy <laughs> and sad of eye, but very wise, very wise was he. And then one Thing you ever. Know. 
And there you go, Big John's Sharer, covering Nature Boy, Nature Girl. The greatest thing is to love and be loved in return. I always loved that song, and I really especially like the way Big John sings it. So Big John brings us up to the top of our hour and to the close of Twice Five Miles Radio, yet another show. Thank you ever so much for tuning in. Thank you, Magdalene Smith, for the interview you did with me a few years back. Looking forward to more from you, hopefully in the future. Same thing with Big John Cher. I think I might play more of his songs. I hope you enjoyed Nature Boy, Nature Girl, and there's more to come from Big John Cher, as always. So there you go. Here we have arrived at at the top of of our hour. Thank you ever so much for tuning in to Twice Five Miles Radio. I appreciate it. Uh, I'm your host, James Nave. We're always broadcasting first on WPVMLP, Asheville 103.7, and streaming online, WPVMFM.org. The voice of Asheville heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio, out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song. WalterParks.com if you're interested in Walter's music. Davine Dial. Cheers to you for managing WPVM-FM. If you're listening out there and wondering more about what community radio does, WPVMFM.org is a good place to look. Lots to learn at WPVMFM.org. If you'd like to reach out to me, jamesnave.com, that's my website. N-A-V-E, that's how I spelled Nave, jamesnave.com. Would love to hear from you, hear your stories. What are you up to? And if you'd like to join me, any Saturday morning at noon Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Mountain Time. Would love to have you gather with me and my creative collaborator, Allegra Houston. We host the Imaginative Storm Writing Circle of the Week, gathering its prompts, and the writers gather, and we write together. ImaginativeStorm.com if you'd like to be part of that group. So thanks again for tuning in to what we do here on WPVM-FM and Twice Five Miles Radio. I really do appreciate it, and I do hope you tune in again next time. And until then, I'll catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line.